smashing. Give everyone the best possible start to the day. See special packs for details. Smashing. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we ask how can you prove the value of a design system and how can you pitch it effectively to stakeholders? Vidley talks to Ben Callahan to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes brand new articles to the website throughout your working week? There's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. If you've ever found yourself tasked with creating and implementing custom UI, then you know how difficult it can be to meet the demands of the modern web. In Meet Skeleton, Svelte and Tailwind for Reactive UIs, Chris Simmons demonstrates how the power of framework-specific UI libraries such as Skeleton can lead to more productivity using the combined ability of Svelte and Tailwind to build modern web-based apps. In Everything Developers Must Know About Figma, Christine Velour highlights some of Figma's features and possibilities to help you build a design that aligns with code as much as needed and helps to improve your teamwork along the way. Vitaly Friedman takes a look into designing a better back button UX. There aren't many things in usability testing that keep showing up over and over again. One of them is the anxiety people experience when they have to go back to the previous page. Users generally don't have much trust in the browser's back button as we've all been in a situation where the browser's back button just didn't work as expected. Vitaly asks how we can design a better back button UX and looks at where to put those back buttons in our user interfaces. In an introduction to context propagation in JavaScript, Aviata Alouche notes that React popularized the idea of context propagation within our applications using its context API as an alternative to prop drilling and synchronizing states across different parts of the app. In this article, Eviata introduces the core ideas of context propagation in JavaScript and shows that there's no magic at all behind some of the most useful React APIs. Oh, yeah! And Caleb Alojo explores implementing a reset password feature with Next.js dynamic routes. Most users tend to forget their passwords at one point or another, so creating experiences that will always be valuable for people when they use your products becomes key. In this article, Caleb discusses how to implement a password reset feature with Next.js dynamic routes while prioritizing the user experience. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. He studied computer science and worked as a software engineer, as an audio engineer for independent films, as an animator, and of course as a front-end developer focused on standards-based web development. These days he is a design system researcher and consultant, working with wonderful people, almost sparkling people at Sparkbox, to build a better web. Now he is always in learning mode and there is no better way to describe him as an explorer, maybe even internet explorer with a very strong focus on design systems. Now, he lives in Dayton, Ohio, loves cooking, poetry, travel, photography, coffee, that was an important one, and has two pretty pretty swell kiddos. My smashing friends, please welcome, and I I hope I can hear the cheers and applause right here, Ben Callahan. Hello, Ben, how are you? Hi, Vitaly, I am smashing. 
Wow, that is fantastic to hear. Well, you do look smashing as well, if I may say so. Ben, let's start right away and dive right in there. How does a person who just happens to be a software engineer turn into a design system researcher? Can you share a bit of your journey to get there? Um, because I know that you've been working on design systems probably before it was even a thing. So I want to hear it all. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me, Vitaly. I, I do appreciate it. I'm super excited because I love design systems. It's And one of the reasons that I think it's become an area of focus for us is because I have seen how it has helped um, organizations create a lot of unity inside their teams, which is something that I've always wanted. And so that's sort of you know, if we're if we're asking if you're asking about my journey, <clears throat> the reason I'm sort of pointed in this direction is because of that. And if I go back, you know, I did study computer science. I um, I was frustrated working in sort of the corporate world, feeling like I, I didn't have a lot of um, there wasn't just a lot. There just wasn't vision, you know, for the kinds of things I wanted to, to work on. And so eventually I stepped out of that space, took a year to just explore different technologies like animation and audio and just other things that I was interested in and ended up starting a business doing video production and audio engineering. And then we did a website for one of our clients. And um, as soon as the rest of our customers saw that we offered that, it just was the only thing they wanted. <laughs> this was early days of the web, you know, and so um, I ended up sort of buying my partner in that business out and, tr and transitioning it to a web studio, very, a very local web studio, you know, here in, in Ohio. Um, and eventually kind of merged that with a few other folks who were doing good creative, you know, technical work in town. And the result um, over a few years of us churning to figure out what we really wanted to do was again, a focus on the web. And that's how Sparkbox was born. <clears throat> I'm really fortunate because we've, We've sort of grown slowly and steadily over the last 14 years. And that means that as a front-end engineer, as a computer science guy, I've transitioned out of writing code you know, every day. And um, instead I get to sort of like focus on where do I want us to be headed? What, what do I think is important for us to be learning and um, how can we best serve our customers? And that's really how I pretty naturally ended up digging in deeper to design system work. Cause I, I actually do believe that it is a really, it's a, a unifying opportunity for a team. So that's kind of like how I landed here. <laughs> oh, that's, that sounds uh, very exciting indeed. And I think in many ways we are, everybody who's listening to the show now as well, I think we all have been in one place and then we kind of moved to slightly different one, just steadily and slowly. And I know a couple of people who used to, I don't know, sell glasses before the internet was a thing. And then off you go, becoming a um, designer, developer, manager in for design systems and all things like that. Uh, so that's really, really exciting to see that. Interestingly, about kind of talking about design systems, I think we are in a very interesting position right now because it feels like we have been playing and toying and experimenting and working around design systems for many, 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 many years now. And I don't know about you, you probably have, of course, way more experience than that. Um, many teams already have one, right? Or they are trying to get one. It might be up to date, maybe not but they're definitely not something new and shiny around the block um, that we just need to try out. Many people have tried with that. You did spend a bit of time trying to understand what makes a design system mature. 
So maybe you could actually dive a little bit more into this and explain, based on your experiences, of course, at Sparkbox as well, like what is the maturity model for design systems? So what does it can entail? Yeah, you're right, Vitaly, that we have been, as an industry, working very systematically for a long time, years before we started to use the word design system, you know. Um, and Sparkbox, like many other studios or, or consultants, <clears throat> you know, had, had been working in that way for a long time. I think, you know, when you put a name on a thing, <laughs> like design systems, when you give it a name, it sort of takes on a life of its own, you know, and and so definitely, um, you know, there was a point, you know, probably six years ago when our clients just started asking us for that, you know, six or seven years ago. Um, and so I think when that starts to happen, you know, as an organization, as a leader in an organization, I feel like it's my job to better understand that. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> for us, what that has meant is for the last five years, we've done what we call the design system survey. And in, in that, and that's just to open to the industry. And as part of that process, I get to ask, I get to do lots of interviews with folks who I just find online who are doing this work in an interesting way. And I just ask if I can have a half an hour or an hour of their time. And I just ask them a ton of questions. And so that has given me um, like a, a lot of ex, uh, exposure to very broad perspectives on what's happening um, in the space. And so with all of that, you know, as part of an input for me, what I have done over the last four or five years is each year talk to lots of folks and then sit down and try to try to find some cohesion in all the different stories that I'm hearing. Um, so a couple of years ago, leading up to the release of our, our survey for 2021, I had done that series of interviews and I just I realized that there were some patterns that I was seeing emerge in terms of how systems were moving and maturing. And that's where we kind of landed on these four stages that we think most design system um, programs move through. Um, and that we tried to keep these quite simple because I, I don't want this to be something that's you know super theoretical. I want it to be practical and useful. But at a high level, the model is, is um, there are these four stages. The first is just a building version one. So that's literally everything you do up until you, you know, release something for subscribers inside your organization to start using. And then um, pretty much every team that I've spoken with who has gone through that and actually you know, got something out the door, um, their next big focus is almost always on adoption. And that makes a lot of sense, right? You, you spend a bunch of time building a thing. Of course, you want to see if other folks are interested in using it. And so that sort of like second stage is driving adoption. And then, um, you know, if you're able to kind of make it easy to become a subscriber, and if you do a really good job supporting folks who are using your system, uh, and if you continue to evolve the system in a way that it, sh it shows value to lots and lots of different types of subscribers inside your organization, then you can reach this third stage, which we just call surviving the teenage years. <laughs> and this is a tricky, it's a tricky season because um, there's lots happening, right? You're having a lot more people use the system. It's, I can guarantee you they're probably going to try to do things with it you never imagined they would. Um, you're, you, this is where you sort of, sort of have to make a decision. Are we actually going to treat this like a product? Are we going to offer support in a really healthy way? Are we going to you know, come alongside the subscribers and engage with them in, in good ways? Um, 
And if you can continue to sort of survive that stage, you reach what what we call the stage four, which is just evolving a healthy product. And this is um, really where the design system team takes um, actually takes a role in terms of leadership inside the design organization itself. And these teams that are stage four are doing incredible things. You know, when I talk to people inside these organizations, they talk about the design system team as the place where the most skilled workers in their organization um, operate. They, they say things like, um, our design system team was all, was ready for us when when my my product team came and said, hey, we want to try Vue. You know, they, they had already done a spike on the design system team to show they could support that. They're, they're very proactive. They're not reactive. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, a really healthy place to be, you know, to be to be at the table for big conversations, to be driving decisions inside the org. That's what I think is is possible, you know, if you if you mature in that way. Well, that sounds very exciting. But then in your experience, like looking again at the work um, that your clients are doing, where would you say most companies are at this point? How many are actually reaching level four? And where do most companies struggle? Yeah, that's that's great. I'm glad you're asking that because I think, um, you know, doing that work, one of the things, one of the outputs I was hoping for is to make it clear how to move through these stages in a healthy way. You know, um, I, I think... You know, you said something earlier that I'll just harken back to, which was you said most folks have a system already. What I'm what I'm seeing is that many organizations are on their second, third, fourth, fifth attempt at doing this work. Um, so it's not just that they have a system; it's that they have been struggling to build a successful system for for years. In some cases, um, most of the time. I would say most organizations that I get a chance to interact with are stuck somewhere between two and three. And it's actually really common to get stuck there because this is where, you know, everything before stage three is about sort of like, you know, building something people will value and use. And once you, in order to transition into three, you sort of have to What it seems like right now is that you kind of need to increase the size of your design system team and that the skill sets that are needed are a little bit different. This is where you have to actually add in like a product support team, you know, like customer service for your subscribers. Right. And it's because the system is is if it's going to take root, it's going to be a really fundamental piece of any interface work that your organization does. And for that to be the case, you have to really actually support those folks in a really healthy way. If they don't feel like you're there for them, if they're going to use your product, you, you have to show them you, that you're trustworthy, you know. And right, so right. that requires more people. You know, there's just more to do. Um, and, and so that's a tough spot. I see folks oftentimes moving between two and three, you know, quite a bit. Um, not I haven't only I haven't spoken with a ton of folks who have reached that stage for, you know, more mature, like really driving uh, more proactive decisions inside the org yet. But they're out there. Yeah. One interesting thing for me was uh, when I encountered working with one of the bigger companies uh, from Romania, actually, and they've been working on design system for six to seven years. Pretty much kind of aligned to what you're saying as well, where everybody was on the gold rush, design systems gold rush in a way. And I was extremely impressed with just um, 
how concise, how well-established, how reliable, how sophisticated the design system was. And so um, that took a lot of iteration, of course, as well. But it also takes a big commitment from the top. And I know that you also have been speaking for a, while, for a while now about how to sell a design system, because very often it is expensive and very often you still need to convince the right people that this is the right amount of effort and that the return on investment will be worth it. Um, would you say that at this point it's something that's already considered to be true most of the time? Or is it something that you actively have to prove every single time with some metrics or KPIs? How does it work for you? Yeah, it's it's not proven. You know, I think <clears throat> I mean there are there are organizations who have done that work for their use case and I think that's great, you know. Um I I this is a this is a tough area, you know, and and the it's hard I don't have like a single answer. I have more of like an approach I think that has helped us. So I have um had the opportunity to speak with a lot of leadership inside organizations where they're trying to make a decision if they should be investing heavily in a system. And I think that's actually probably the right first step. I'm not somebody who is, um, you know, absolute in this. I, I think there are there are situations where a design system is really helpful, really beneficial. There are situations where I probably wouldn't recommend it. You know, um, that doesn't mean some you know, um, sort of like variation of, you know, patterns and, you know, components and things isn't needed in most cases. But if you have a single product and a small team and you're in startup mode, it's probably not worth investing all this time and money to build a design system to support a single product, you know, like it just, the, 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 the bang is not there for your bucks. <laughs> um, so, uh, so there are definitely use cases. That's one of many where I probably wouldn't recommend it. Um, in terms of once you've made that decision to pursue it, then it is about, you know, making sure leadership is on board at some, at some stage in there, you have to make that transition to getting leadership really bought in. Um, not every system starts that way. You know, we talk about in the maturity model, there's a concept called origin stories, which is just really how, involved and aware and supportive your leadership is in those early stages. And um, there are many systems that are very successful now that started without any, you know, no, no leadership involvement at all. It's a, it's a transition. It's a, it's a maturity that has to happen. And as part of a successful system, you do need that long-term, you know? Um, but the way we, we help our clients figure out how to get support from leadership is that we, we do what you would no, do with any other product is we go and we talk to those folks and we try to understand what are their needs and how, what are their goals and how can a design system be shaped to, to serve those things that are important to them. Um, and if you can sort of reposition, you know, the, the, the effort in a way that it solves problems for folks, they're going to be willing to support it. The other big thing, to talk about in those early days when you're selling the systems, especially is that you, um, a design system is only going to show its value over a very long period of time. So this is truly an investment, right? It's the kind of thing you put time and money into, and you have to trust that over years, you'll start to see a return on that, but it's not a quick, it's not a quick thing. So being clear about that up front is actually really hel helpful <laughs> in the work. Um, and your last question was about, is it something you just sell once and then you're done? I don't, I've never seen that really work. It's a constant, um, actually as part of the maturity model, we talk about three things, education, 
which is, you know, convincing folks, talking to folks, casting the vision, um, explaining why, what, how, you know, all of those things. Engagement, which is, you know, getting folks involved in the work with you. It's not a, it's not a one-way thing. It's, it's definitely very, um, there's a lot of work required from all the different groups involved. And then evolution, which is just simply making the system better over time. So if you're not doing all three of those things all the time, you kind of get stuck in that, in those steps to mature. Um, so that's kind of what we've learned. Right, right. Well, that's, uh, that's very exciting. Um, I'm wondering, and I really want to know more about what you have learned, because you did mention that you uh, well, and the wonderful team at Sparkbox have released Design System Survey 2022. And I'm really curious about some of the new things that you maybe haven't kind of uncovered there. What were some of the most surprising findings that you discovered there during that research? Yeah, I mean, each year we do that. This is our fifth year releasing that. Each year, you know, we come away with <clears throat> some really interesting um, insights, and this year is no different. I, the one thing that one of the things that really stood out to me, I remember when, you know, we were sort of, um, you know, working on what questions would we ask this year, and there was a, a series of questions in in the survey this year around what are your top challenges? And we give folks a list of options to choose from. And then what are your top priorities? And we give them the same list. And I remember reading that question and kind of saying to my team, uh, aren't people just going to pick the same things here? Right? If these are my challenges, then why wouldn't those be the things I'm prioritizing? Um, but they convinced me to leave it in and they thought we would find something insightful there. And of course they were right. <laughs> um, one of the things that's really interesting to me is, is in that survey, There are a handful of, of areas where you can see sort of like a, a, a difference in what is important to people in terms of what is a challenge and what they're actually able to prioritize and work on. The one that stands out the most is staffing. And this ties in actually with what we were just speaking about, Vitaly, around that stage two to stage three transition where you you need to grow the team. The number of folks working on this, the, the volume of work gets much larger as you move from stage two to three. And if you don't have the support from leadership to increase staff, which is kind of what that is hinting at, um, you, you can't really do that well. You can't make that transition well. Um, and it's it, 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 what it, to me, the way I've interpreted this is that a lot of folks in the survey data say staffing is a big challenge, but it's not, a, a, it can't be a priority for them. And it's interesting because I think what that means is there's a, there's a separation in, the kinds of things that the design system team has the authority to prioritize, right? So they may be able to say, here's the things objectively that we have as challenges, but maybe they don't have the authority to choose how to, you know, spend the money or, or um, how to prioritize things, which I feel like is a disconnect. You know, um, if we're going to trust these folks to run this design system program, we have to trust them to set their own priorities. So that's one that stood out to me for sure. Um, right, right. It's, uh, it's always kind of a story because I think in, in many ways, when I deal with companies that choose to go ahead and um, kind of give a green light to, to the team for design system, there is still always a little bit of a trust that this is kind of a simple, relatively simple side project, which is not going to drive us away from the main core product that we're working on. So if a designers in this case believe that this is the right thing, sure, but surely this cannot be the priority. And so surely there will be no extra stuff involved into making this happen. Um, so that's pretty much, I guess, aligned with what you are saying here as well. Um, 
And obviously people are important. So I'm wondering though, in your experience, maybe that would be interesting to explore. What would you say are some of the important ingredients of a successful design system? When do you know that you're on the right track? Or how do you know? Do you ever know? Ben, do you ever know? <laughs> yeah, it's hard, man. It's hard because it gets into, you know, like the promises you make early on are the things that people are going to expect you to prove later, you know? Um, so I think successful systems can look very different inside different organizations. Um, and it's, it's, it's really, I wish there was a simple answer, you know, um, I think there are some common things, you know, we talk about a lot of those things in, in our, in our survey, we ask each year, do you feel your system is successful? And then we can, you know, take that information and look at the, the, the other characteristics of, of, uh, design system programs that where they feel they are successful. And then we can make some, um, interesting observations, you know, um, one of the things that we kind of always see is that having better engagement almost always means the system that individuals feel that the system is more successful. So in other words, you can't operate on this. You can't build and, and offer a system unless you're actually, unless you're actually working alongside the people who need it, you know, it's like any other product, you have to understand their needs and you have to get kind of down into the work with them. And so that's what we encourage and kind of help our clients set up is those sorts of engaging um, practices. Um, I think the educational side of it is always key too. And, and, and this is where, like, in fact, this year, one of the things I've been focused on is just going back to um, what is a system, what is a design system? And this, this sprung out of a couple consulting engagements last year where big companies that have had systems for years and I, we get in there and ask a ton of questions. And what we understand very quickly is all the people here have very different ideas about what a system is, why it's important, how it should be done. And, you know, this is seven, eight years into folks working on this stuff and people still don't actually understand what a design system is. And so, um, that's a problem, right? And right, right. I'm not saying that you have to have the same exact definition that I do, but if you internally and in, uh, internal to your organization don't have that defined, that's a real, that's where the real problem is. So we did a bunch of work this year to, to lay out what we just call the anatomy of a design system, which is a very kind of simple breakdown of what is a system. It gives us some common language to use. And, and that's been really helpful for our, for our clients and for us, you know, as we work alongside them. So I think going through that exercise with your own internal team is one way to make sure that you're going to be setting yourself up for success. There's probably many more. <laughs> right. But then Ben, can you maybe shed a bit more light into things like, um, hmm, how would I put it best? So if, if I'm working let's say, on a design system in a company and I'm pretty confident that things are going in the right direction and it seems like everything is reasonably well structured within the organization, there is a, there are people who are working on it. It kind of goes as it's supposed to be. Uh, what would you say are some of those red flags that one usually should be aware of just to avoid sort of a, uh, I don't know, deterioration, I guess, of a design system in the company. Yeah. Um, there are <clears throat> definitely seasons. I think folks go through where they feel like, Hey, we've, we've kind of got things figured out. We have a, we have a good groove or, or <clears throat> we're following our processes, you know, everything's good. Um, I think one of the things that we've seen is that like any other product, there is sort of a level of stability you have to aspire to as well. 
And the, the same challenges that we're used to solving for our externally facing products are also going to be the reality for us with an internal product, like a design system. And that's when things change around you, you know? And so like many times we've had, we've, we've come in to work with an organization where they felt they had a great program running and leadership changed, you know, like a new director comes in or a new VP comes in and they have a very different perspective on how to approach the work. And they haven't been there for the journey that you have been on. And so all of a sudden you're kind of thrust into this instability where you have to again prove that you're that you're a valuable part of the organization in the process you have to show sometimes this is where the metrics come in where you have to like not just tell them but you have to actually show them <laughs> um and so that's one tiny example but you know um uh, sh shifts in the market right um pivoting a product like a rebrand like all of these kinds of things can impact that what feels like that stability. And so, um, you know, we, we try to think about, we've done a bunch of work to try to figure out what are the things that we can have in place in the, in the seasons where things are feeling good. How do we make sure we're, we're, we're creating more stability that will actually help our system last through those kinds of changes. And there's like three big things we've identified. The first is, um, authority, which is that real, real, um, visible support from leadership. Um, the second is value which is that you're continuously monitoring that the, the product you're offering, the design system itself is actually valuable to the folks you're asking to use it. That's engagement, right? You have to be making sure that it's doing something helpful for your, it has to be the easiest way to work, you know? Um, and then tradition is the third, and that's a little bit different in that you, you earn that over time, right? Having authority and, and being valuable over time, you become sort of the way an organization builds interfaces. And that's that tradition of like, this is how we work actually is quite a stabilizing force in, in this, in the context of a lot of change. So um, those are kind of the three things we help our customers put in place in order to create systems that last beyond just those seasons of feeling like we've got it figured out. <laughs> right. But I think also the underlying asset behind all of that is something that we spoke about in Berlin when you were here. I remember that cup of coffee. It was a very nice cup of coffee. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> and also a very nice conversation that we, we had back then. And we were talking about culture. Yeah. We're talking specifically about uh, for all of this to succeed, we need to have a proper culture and company and organization that not only supports and enables design system, but has a little bit of design system sprinkled uh, pretty much everywhere in the organization. So maybe you could share a bit more on that because I know that you spent quite a bit of time uh, working around design system and culture. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is this is what I've been working on most recently, and I'm so excited about it. <clears throat> I think I, I think I. Um, have learned a bit from a couple of our engagements with clients where, um, you know, we, we, uh, every, every organization, any place where people are getting together consistently, a culture is formed. So that means if you work at a big company, there's an organizational culture that is, that is created from all of these folks coming together to work on a thing, but also each day you're probably not interacting with every employee. And so your small team that you interact with on a daily basis will form a subculture that exists inside of that larger organization's culture. And there are probably hundreds or thousands of subcultures inside big organizations, right? The group of folks who, um, get together on zoom and knit over lunch. 
there's going to be a subculture formed there, right? The book club where they're reading about whatever science fiction book just came out. Well, I love a good book club. Yeah. See, there's a subculture being formed there, right? Um, what I, I have been doing a bunch of research in just reading papers from the last few decades of, of, of um, you know, other folks much smarter than I who have been researching organizational culture. And I've been looking at that because I feel like there's a missing piece in what we're talking about with design systems. And that's an observation that I've made just in our work. And one of the things that I think is, is helping us to sort of frame that challenge up a little better is understanding the different types of cultures that can exist. And there's lots of material on this. There's a there's a model that I love um, that's, I think, from the late or early 90s, which is called the Competing Values Framework. And um, I'll, I'll send you a link, Vitaly, so you can share that in the show yeah, notes. But um, it's really nice. And it just takes two two ideas on a, on a spectrum, X, X and Y, and it gives you kind of four high-level general types of cultures that can exist in an organization. Um, and one of the things that I've learned is in, in, in my interviews, almost every single one of our design system teams that I've talked to is on the left side of this diagram, which means they're internally oriented. So they're either collaborative or they're controlling. That's that's the two sort of culture types that are the most common for a design system team. And that makes sense, right? A collaborative approach is when you're saying, hey, everybody come help me do this. And together we'll build something that we can all use. That's very common. And then controlling is a little different. And that's where you know we're saying, hey, this design system is in place to make sure, to ensure that the output is consistent. And so you cannot veer from this. It's more like us being restrictive. Like a strict guideline that we need to stick to, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. So those are the two sort of, you know, this is very general, but those are kind of the two general um, ideas of cultures that exist really in design system teams. But there's two others, and those are more externally oriented. And one of those is um, competitive, which is about you know, being driven by the market, you know. Um, and the other is more entrepreneurial, and it, it's uh, creative, it's called. And these, these are folks who are just trying to disrupt stuff, you know. <laughs> um, and so with these four ideas, what, what I've learned is some of these cultures work well together and some of them don't. And as a design system team, you don't get to choose the culture of your organization, right? You are going to be a subculture. And so what we're learning now is there's a lot of nuance in being smart about how to, to structure the culture, how to like you know, curate the culture of your design system team in a way that it can operate successfully inside the larger organization's culture. And that's a lot of the work that I've been doing. And, and, um, and I'm really, I just feel like there's so much to this. Um, I have a lot more, you know, research to do, but it's already starting to show a lot of value in our consulting work. Cyber attacks are on the rise. And no business is too big or too small to be targeted. When you create your site with Wix, you get 24-7 enterprise-grade security. It's fully managed for you by a team of experts who take care of threat prevention, real-time detection, and rapid response, so your site stays up and running in any situation. The whole platform is secure by design, with threat modeling, penetration tests, and design and code reviews throughout the dev process. And it's monitored around the clock with data analysis and machine learning, so threats are identified faster. Wix meets the highest international privacy and security standards from PCI DSS Level 1 to SOC 2 Type 2 
and even the strongest data encryption out there, AES-256. With a secure website, you can grow your business with peace of mind. Visit wix.com security to learn more. That's wix.com security. And we thank Wix for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, that makes sense because once you have uh, sort of an organization that already has a culture in place, it's, you probably can't change that. But you might change the way of how your design system would operate in that environment to make it kind of to make the best out of, use out of that. That's right. Well, I, I hope that at some point you will be, I don't know, writing articles, maybe even books about this. <laughs> yes. Did I hear something, uh, a rumor about an upcoming book on just that? Eventually, that's the plan. Yeah, um, trying to put something together that has kind of these three big concepts, you know, the anatomy of a system. So like actually getting some nuts and bolts about being very clear and articulate about what a system is, understanding how systems mature, as we've already spoken about, and then recognizing the impact of an organization's culture on the design system team and how, how we can structure that in a way that it's successful. So those kind of the big any deadlines that you've put yourself in your calendar. Already? I'm hoping yeah, I'm hoping to have my draft done this year. Um and that mean and then from there, you know, there's the whole process of of editing and yeah. and all of it. So yeah, I even know a publisher who might be interested in publishing at oh, some yeah? point. Who knows? Who knows? Give, yeah, give me that. Yeah, we'll, we'll give me their number. <laughs> Yeah, I will. I will. Uh, maybe let's um, just spend a bit more time thinking kind of more hands-on about what are some of the things that designers, developers working in organizations, working in companies on a design system, what they can do to make things a bit better for the process, for collaboration, for the workflow, for uh, for everything. Maybe let's start maybe just by you kind of briefly maybe highlighting how do you start or kick off projects when it comes to design systems with your clients? What do you usually start with? Obviously, there is going to be some research involved and all, but what would be the initial steps to get to a solid foundation for kind of early on? Yeah, it's um, you're right. It, it is research. We, we call this phase um, onboarding at Sparkbox. And what we try to like, what we try to recognize is that those early days of an engagement like that are the days when you know the least, right? And so um, we we try to embrace the idea that we're going to know a little bit more tomorrow than we did today, and um, we try to be very iterative. I think those early days for us are oftentimes about building relationships with the with the folks inside the organization and. We do often ask to be introduced to lots and lots of people, even if we're not going to work with them daily, you know, in, in the design system work, um, we still need to know what they're, what they're dealing with, what they're going through. How are they, how are they accomplishing their tasks each day? What are their goals? Um, and what we're trying to do is I think model for our clients that you cannot do design system work effectively unless you really truly understand the needs of your users, your subscribers. And so that is where we start. Um, and, and so it's, it's about, you know, we, we do that in a lot of different ways. So there, we may run like a small internal survey and send that to lots and lots of people. We may schedule, you know, three to five interviews with each discipline. And, uh, and one of the things that's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine is that we talk so much about how a design system can benefit a designer or a developer, but we ignore a lot of other disciplines. And so I one of the things that we're intentional about is making sure we're not only speaking to the designers and the developers, but also 
let's talk to some folks in QA. Let's talk to, you know, the product owners. Let's talk to, um, you know, UX research folks. Let's, I think the system should be broad in its, in its goal of, of serving lots of different disciplines. Um, and so the only way that we can do that is if we understand the needs of all of those folks, you know, so that's kind of how we get rolling. Right. And then as time progresses, uh, in terms of collaboration, let's say, between designers and developers, right, it's still always a topic, handoff and no handoff. Mm. Um, Dan Moll and Brett Frost are speaking about the potato model, hot potato model, yeah. where you kind of throw yeah. um, the stuff from designer to developer, from developer to designer. It's kind of all iterative and there is no notion of a handoff because it's just happening all the time in small bits and pieces. Uh, what do you think see working or do you see working best or maybe not working well at all? <laughs> yeah, um, there are, it's, it's funny. There, there's, this is like a spectrum. You know, there are so many organizations that are more iterative in that way. There are a lot of organizations out there that are still very linear, you know, and um, I definitely fall more in the camp of iteration where we're, we are, we believe, we, we talk with our, um, but I talk with our team a lot about this idea of empathy, and I'm not talking about empathy for our end users. I'm talking about empathy for the other disciplines that we have to work alongside. And I think that is key to doing this work well, is understanding that every decision you make, say you're a developer, every every line of code that you write to build an interface has an impact on the visual side of the things, right? So and the experience for the end customer. So like recognizing that all of our decisions are sort of interplaying with each other, I think is, is necessary. And that's where, you know, like building relationships with those people is the way that you can do better work, <laughs> you know? Um, so, so we encourage that. And that's why I love design systems because it kind of forces all of us onto the same team instead of us thinking about, oh, I'm on the, the this product's team. No, we're actually all trying to build stuff that better serves our end customers, right? And the one way we can do that is with a system, you know? Right. Uh, and when it comes to, let's say, those little uh, fine little details, like, for example, you know, many teams will be working with Storybook on the coding side of things and then Figma on the design side of things. How do we then, you know, the ultimate, the billion-dollar question from me to you, Ben, of course, uh, how do you bridge that gap? Um, will tools save us? Will processes save us? Workflows, Slack channels? I don't know. You give me an answer, Brent. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I definitely don't think tools are going to save us. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I get asked a lot about tools because they're, you know, right now, especially with design system stuff, there's so many tools coming on the market and every tool that's out there is investing heavily in offering better and better you know, services. And that's great. We need that kind of innovation happening in the space for sure. And I'm not saying you shouldn't use tools, of course, um, but I don't think tools will save us. You know, I think it's, it's so in our anatomy of a design system model, we talk about every layer of the system consisting of three different parts. And those are, of course, the assets, which are the things everybody thinks about, you know, the files, the the components in React, the the Figma, you know, designs, all of it. But and that and those are important, right? But also we talk about documentation, which is like the uh, a major piece, which is, you know, offering like really actual insightful explanation of what a, a component is or what um, you know, a token is or whatever the thing you're, you're, def you're documenting of also, why is it important? Why is it that way? And, um, and then we also talk about process as a key part of that, of this for every each layer. And this is, I think 
um, if I had to say what will save us, I think being, being intentional and thinking through the actual process that you're going to follow and, and being clear about what it is and how to follow it is the way that we're able to, you know, set, set these kind of different disciplines up for success. Um, you know, in the example you said, designer developer, like one of the common things that one of the biggest challenges we see is that folks don't trust the design system because the version of it that a designer used is no longer in sync with the version of it that a developer is going to use. And that's, that's a problem, right? Because, because now all of a sudden, I'm going to next time when I come around, you know, if I go through the process thinking that it's in sync and at the end I realize, oh my gosh, I used the design system as a developer and now the output is different than what my designer designed, that's a problem. I'm not going to want to use the system anymore because that that issue means I have to go redo stuff, right? So that actually has taken away any efficiencies that we might have gained by having a design system because I've just created a bunch of rework for myself. So the solution to that, there's two two big things, right? One is defining a process to keep these things in sync and and just being clear about what that is. And the other is transparency about the current state of each piece of, 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 a, of a system. So now I can know, I can choose as a developer to use the system if I know um, if I'm, you know, there's transparency and I know that it's not quite in sync with what the de designer used, that just means, oh, I might have a little bit of iteration to do on it, but I haven't gone through expecting it to be perfect at the end, you know? So that transparency creates trust and the process is, is the way that you can say, hey, we know things will at some point become, you know, synchronized. You can choose, you know, to, to wait until that's done, or you can go now and maybe help us create the synchronization, you know? So I think those are the two things that, it, you know, that's just one example, but like, it's a balance, right? Of these, of the way that we work with each other and the tools offering some of that, you know, um, automatically. And then when they don't, putting the process in place to do it manually. So Right, absolutely. Well, that's, uh, that sounds very exciting. Well, I do have to ask one more thing, Ben, as we're wrapping up slowly. Uh, I know that you've been working on so many different projects with so many different companies, so many different brands, and so many different design systems across, you know, I don't know how many companies and brands uh, at this point. Do you still have a dream project that you would love to be working on one day? I don't know, maybe it could be a design system for a big brand or maybe it could be anything else. I know that you, you know, you are a big audio guy, mm. right? So you have been spending quite a bit of time in, with audio and as an audio engineer as well. Um, and you have so many other things that are really interesting to you. And, and during the conversation that we had back in Berlin, I just realized just how broad uh, your interests really are. So if you could do anything, any big project that you would like to take on, what would it be? Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, I'm not, I think it's not for me, it's not like about the size of a company or like the brand awareness, that kind of thing. I mean, we, we have worked with some big organizations and that's always fun to kind of, you know, when you're talking with your family later to be like, Oh, you went to that website. We helped build that. You know, that's always a fun moment. Um, but I think it's, it's for me, it's always kind of been about impact. So if there was a way to help organizations, you know, actually create that unity on their teams. That's the thing that really is driving me at the moment. So, um, you know, the idea of a book, I think, is a, a way to kind of put that together and actually actually see folks 
you know, grow from it and um, make better decisions within their daily work. That that's pretty exciting to me. Um, the other one I think is just I, I really enjoy teaching and and, and working a lot, you know, with folks. And so I think so, at some point in my future, I probably will find a way to kind of give back in that way. Um, and that's pretty exciting for me to think about. So there's a couple. That sounds great. <laughs> that's great. So dear friends, we've been learning quite a bit about design system in this episode, but I'm still wondering what have you been learning about lately, Ben, that might not be related to design system or might be related to design system? What keeps you busy these days? What keeps you on your toes? Yeah, that's fun. Um, my my son is at a um, a camp this week, and he is studying um, VR gaming. He's tr he's learning how to make VR games, and so you know he and I have a lot of fun. He's kind of you know he's learning to program as well, and so my my computer science background you know gets gets me back into some code, kind of goofing around with him. So there's some stuff I'm learning there. Um, I am, um, a, I'm a, always learning about coffee. You can probably see some, of, yeah, some of my, some yeah, of my yeah, coffee sure. equipment here. Um, so I have a couple new, um, new toys that I'm playing with in, in the coffee world too, always. <laughs> so that sounds great. Yeah. So do you think we'll be, we should be expecting you to become a VR developer or VR engineer or barista anytime soon? Yes, that's definitely it. I'll be a barista probably in the near future. <laughs> If nothing else works out. Right. <laughs> well, that sounds about right. If you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Ben, you can find him on Twitter, where he is at Ben Callahan, and we'll obviously uh, post the link to it in the episode notes, and also on his website at bencallahan.com. That's not very surprising, or else I would say. But you also can find him at sparkbox.com, where the wonderful sparkling sparkboxers, is that the right way of saying that? That's what we so. say, sparkboxers, uh, yeah. Sparkboxers are doing all the incredible job on design systems and beyond. So thank you so much for joining us, Ben. It was a pleasure and fun as always. Yeah. Any parting words of wisdom streaming to the internet out there as an internet explorer? Oh my gosh, internet explorer. <laughs> uh, no. Um, well, go um, check out the um, second draft of the tokens um, spec that's coming out. There's a lot of feedback needed there if you're into that space. Um, so that would be a thing I would encourage folks to go read. This is smashing and that was our podcast thank you very much for listening and if you liked it please share it with your friends find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com on twitter at smashingmag smashing magazine on facebook or in the supermarket by the cat food <laughs>